Good morning. As we uh, continue our uh, our series that we're doing about discipling and how Jesus actually discipled uh, his disciples, uh, according to Mark's account, as we uh, continue that series today, let us come to God in prayer. Father, you call all of us to be followers of Jesus. And you call us, Father, to into a relationship with yourself and also to serve you amongst each other and to others. And Father, we know how you invested through your Son into the lives of these 12 men that they might become not only followers of Jesus but become the leaders of a whole new movement into your kingdom. And Father, as we come to your word again, as we begin to explore uh, the story of how you developed and shaped the lives of these men, Father, that we would see how you are forming and shaping us. Help us, Father, even from this passage today, see you, that you might speak into our lives through your spirit. Amen. When I became a follower of Jesus myself, when I was about uh, just 13 years of age, I had very little idea of where that was all going to take me. I guess one of the advantages I did have was that I'd grown up in a Christian family and uh, we're, we were regular churchgoers, so I did have some idea or some appreciation of what it might mean to be a follower of Jesus. My sense of call to pastoral ministry was something that I actually experienced when I was only 16 years of age. And my sense then was that all I uh, was looking towards or what I felt God was calling me towards was just to be a country pastor in a nice country town somewhere in the state or beyond. Over time, though, I had many different kinds of experiences, some painful, some very positive. Experiences that really shaped me and formed me and um, things that God was doing in my life even before the days that I came to know him. There were things that were happening to me that were very uh, formative for the years to come. Some of those experiences that I went through at different times were quite painful. The death of my sister, not moving on with my family when they relocated and having to stay behind uh, to finish off my schooling in that place. The refusal of Judy's family for us to have permission to marry. And then the death of Judy's father just weeks after we did get married. But there are other very positive experiences that we had as well, things that impacted me in profound ways. The leadership opportunities that I had uh, through my schooling, through uh, the youth organisations I belonged to, through sport. Uh, having lived in Canberra for some years, having lived in country areas prior to that, and only ever knowing Anglos, I went to a school where all the embassy kids went to. 
So I was exposed to a whole range of different cultures, people from different countries around the world. And all of these and many other experiences, God was able to use in shaping and preparing me in some of my character and also for future ministry and experiences that took me to places since then that I would never have imagined. God has taken me to places and experiences that I had never dreamed about and was preparing me, I believe, for what was to come. Now, that doesn't mean that the present was not relevant. It was. But at times I didn't understand why I might be going through some of the experiences that I was going through at that time as part of my journey of being a disciple of Jesus. You see, this was also true for the way that Jesus was actually forming and shaping his disciples over those three years to become the leaders of the movement of God's kingdom here on earth. As they gradually came to understand who Jesus was and the purpose for which he had come. And many of these lessons came as they shared life and ministry together and as they developed teachable hearts and minds as they learnt from him and from their experiences because Jesus knew what was going to lie ahead for them and he was preparing them for what not only were they experiencing now but for what was to come. See, he knew the challenges. He knew the opposition. He knew the threats that would come to them as they faced their journey with him. So part of his discipling was to prepare them for such circumstances that they might not be overcome by fear, that they might know that he would never leave them nor desert them no matter what situations they found themselves in. And on occasions when their faith would be weak, that he would be there to help them grow stronger and be ready for even bigger challenges. So in dealing with this matter of fear, we're looking at the first of three incidences that deal with this issue in the formation of these disciples. The first incident, which is the one that we're going to be looking at today, is the stilling, stilling, stilling of the storm there on the Sea of Galilee, while the following instances dealt with the healing of the demonic and the raising of Jairus' daughter. You see, these disciples were going to face fearful times in the future. And so at this stage, they had no real idea or appreciation what was going to be ahead of them. And so Jesus wanted them to be prepared for whenever such times would eventuate and to demonstrate God's sovereignty in all circumstances and particularly in powers over darkness. And that's equally true for us. 
I know that a number of you have faced quite difficult circumstances in the past and for some of you it has been quite traumatic. And I know that some of you are facing similar things even right now. And we have no idea what fearful and actual situations that any of us might face into the future. You see, there's no guarantee as a disciple of Jesus that life's not going to get tough at times. And being a disciple of Jesus does not exempt us from the many challenges and difficult circumstances that is often part of life in a fallen world. But we worship and we follow a God who walks with us in such time and who will never abandon us. The background to this particular incident is found in verses 35 to 36 with the precise details seen to bear the marks of a personal reminiscence of somebody who's actually experienced the event. And that day, we're told, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat And there were also other boats with him. Jesus was probably on the edge of exhaustion at this particular point of time. You see, up until this point in his ministry, he had become very popular with the masses and the crowds. And even though the opposition was emerging from some of the religious leaders of the day, Satan was also active in agitating opposition. And later in Jesus' teaching, as he became more focused about the kingdom of God, some of his popularity began to diminish. And we find here that Jesus had had a very heavy day of teaching, of ministering, of healing, and he was physically spent due to the high demands of the crowd. So he gets into a boat and he says to the disciples, let's go away, let's go to the other side of the lake. And he's referring to the eastern side which was probably about eight kilometres across. And Mark in his gospel makes it clear that this was an unpremeditated on Jesus' part. For they took him with him just as he was. He didn't appear to have made any preparation for the journey. And so the incident which follows grows out of those circumstances. But it also fits with his comments in chapter 1 and verse 38 when he says that his mission has to be extended to other places and not just localised. And further, Mark indicates that there were certain witnesses who were present to testify to the unusual phenomena which occurred because that there were other boats with them as well. And the incident itself, we find there in verses 37 to 39 that a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat and so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. 
And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Here is a raging storm which suddenly comes upon the sea. Now this in itself wasn't unusual. Even today this occurs in the rugged country to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, which is the photo on the screen. In an area which we now know as the Golan Heights. And the sea is surrounded by mountains. And in that broken and torn terrain, it's quite easy for the winds to gather and suddenly break out on the sea and a violent and a raging storm can arise in that sea in very few minutes. It is well known for its violent storms. In fact, even today I understand that if you visit the car parks on the western side of the, of the sea, there are warning signs warning dry, uh, drivers of the high winds and that the sea could get very rough very quickly and big waves could come and swamp their cars in the car park, even though it might look like a safe beach. As the winds were nearly always stronger in the afternoon, most of their fishing was done at night. And so as these disciples set out in the calm of the evening to cross to the eastern shore, such a storm breaks out. And within, within minutes, the sea is frothing and the waves are mounting up. It was a great wind, says Mark. And they find themselves in the midst of this tremendous raging storm with the boat filling rapidly as water crashes over the bow and the disciples panic. And even while there were sailors amongst them who would have been familiar with such storms, it appears that this was greater than any that they had experienced before and they all feared for their lives. I recall as a young child uh, with my father and I think one of my sisters present went out in a rowboat on Shellhaven Heads just near where it uh, enters into the sea. And I remember then a storm coming up and we're in a rowboat and uh, I remember we got caught on the other side of the sandbank and we were being washed out to sea. And I remember the panic we were experiencing on that particular occasion and fortunately some other um, motorboat came past was able to tie us to the back and to tow us back. So I understand something of the fear of the sea in a boat when you've lost control. And so they come, wake Jesus up, saying, teacher, they still don't yet understand who he really is. But teacher, do you not care that we perish? Now this probably means that the storm may have already started when Jesus went to sleep because if not they probably would not have accused him of being indifferent you see they accused him of being indifferent to their plight if Jesus had gone to sleep and the storm had risen later they might most likely have woken him up but mainly to alert him to their plight but here they accuse him of indifference in the midst of an emerging peril 
Jesus had gone to sleep and this bothered the, the disciples. So they come to him, concerned, upset, not just because of the peril they face, but because of the apparent indifference that they felt Jesus showed towards their needs. So when they wake him, Jesus arises and without saying a word to them initially, he rebukes the wind and literally muzzles the sea. I don't know what they expected him to do. But what he did do utterly caught them by surprise because they didn't expect that. See, like us, who at times can become panicky, they are saying in effect to Jesus, don't just lie there, do something. And so he rises. And his first words are to rebuke the wind and to muscle the sea. And he says to the wind, peace, and to the sea, be still. And what happens, admonishes these disciples, suddenly there is a great calm. Now the miracle lies not in the lying, uh, sorry, of the stilling of the storm. Because we know even nature will do that eventually. But it's in the suddenness with which it happened. All of a sudden, the wind which had been roaring and beating about their ears stops. There's absolute stillness. And the waves that had been dashing over the bow, filling the boat and threatening them by mounting higher over the side, are suddenly stilled as if a great giant hand has come down and pressed down and there's a great calm. That's what impressed them. All the way across the lake and to the other side and to the mountains to the east, the whole sea suddenly stills and they realise that there has been a supernatural stilling of the storm. And when Mark speaks here of the rebuking, of the Lord rebuking the wind and calming the sea, we need to understand that he was not only speaking to those natural elements. For there are often other unseen forces active in our world that we too often easily forget. I believe that he was speaking to them as much as to the wind and the waves. We live in a fallen world and the powers of evil are always at work around us seeking to control God's world. It is a spiritual battle being waged. And sometimes we forget that. But Jesus understands that. And so he rebukes not only the winds, but he rebukes the forces that arouse it. 
He lived in the constant realisation, as the Apostle Paul says later, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power who seek to impact humanity at all levels. The words that Jesus uses here are exactly the same that he uses when he rebuked the demon back in chapter 1. And Mark uh, tells us uh, when the demons were interrupting Jesus' preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And as Mark records this event, any Jewish readers would have heard echoes of the stories of Jonah or of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and having to cross the Red Sea. Maybe they were reminded of the stories of creation when God's order, God's new world emerged from the dark primal sea. And the Psalms speak several times about the creator God who rules the raging sea, telling its rough and threatening waves to calm down, to quieten down. You see, the sea had become to symbolise for them the dark power of evil threatening to destroy God's good creation, God's people, God's purposes. And you see, Jesus is demonstrating here in a concrete way what he had referred earlier to in his parables, that God's kingdom is at hand. Here is Jesus assuming the role of God's agent. And the forces of evil are aroused, angry and threatening. But Jesus is so confident of God's presence and power that he can fall asleep on a pillow. And the disciples are cross. Doesn't he care if we perish in the storm? But Jesus then puts them on the spot. Because after the storm is calmed, he then speaks to them and he says to them, why are you afraid? Now that might appear a pretty strange question to ask a group of people who have been in danger of losing their lives. Just a moment ago, they were being tossed about in a boat that was rapidly filling with water in a raging storm with no hope or help. Why wouldn't they be afraid? Yet Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? And then he puts his finger on it when he says, have you no faith? It's often why we become afraid. Because of the weakness of our faith. And yet faith is the answer to our fear. That's the first thing we learn out of this incident, that faith is always the answer to our fears regardless of what those fears might be. It's why Jesus asks, why um, have, have you no faith? Had they forgotten his words from the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke to the extent of God's care for them? 
He'd said in the sermon, you are much more valuable than flowers, than birds. God cares for them. Will he not much more care for you? O ye of little faith. He was in the boat with them. Their fate would be his fate. And yet they'd forgotten this. How might they have acted if their faith had been stronger? If their faith in him and God's love and care. Because that's the faith he's talking about here. Faith in him and his, God and his care and love. What would they have done? They probably wouldn't have wakened him. They would have let him rest because they knew he was weary and tired and needed rest badly. If their faith had been strong, they would have known that the boat would not have sunk and the storm would not have lasted forever. You see, in our times of difficulty and storms, we need also to remember <coughs> that the boat will not sink and the storm won't last forever. That's having faith, to remember that truth. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I'll tell you how to look at it. Haven't you noticed how in our own little war here on earth there are different phases? And while any one phase is going on, people get into the habit of thinking and behaving as if it's going to be permanent. But really the thing is changing under your hands all the time. And neither your assets nor your dangers are the same as the year before. The significance of this event to us is that faith is the answer to our fears and our anxieties, whether that be personally or as a church. Faith in the goodness of God Faith in the care of God in our lives. Faith that he loves us and he's able to work in our midst no matter what our circumstances might be. But there's another lesson. And that is that failure in faith is often a door to greater vision. Verses 41 and 40, uh, 40 to 41 tell us that he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the word translated terrified means fear, but it is a different kind of fear that we refers to earlier. It is a deep sense or a sense of deep respect which has awe at its heart. 
amazement. You see, out of the failure of their faith came this greater impression, this glimpse into the mystery of who God is or who Jesus is, which filled them with a great sense of awe. Who can this be? That even the the winds and the seas obey him, who controls the elements of the natural world. Who then is this? And this moves the disciples to a greater understanding, a greater appreciation of who Jesus is and the power that he brings. This incident actually sets the groundwork for a new expression of faith the next time that they found themselves in challenging circumstances and storms. Their failure opened the possibility for a new expression of faith to come. And friends, this is the way that God works in our lives. He often does the same thing with us. Out of times when our faith is tested and we don't always measure up, God uses those times to enable us to grow and to prepare for other things to come. If our faith is strong enough, we can see that God can bring about his purposes through us. But even when our faith is weak, he doesn't let things completely collapse around us. He will hold us up and see us through somehow in the process. He will lay the foundation for a new glimpse of his might and power that will enable our faith to grow stronger for the future. May we know the care and love of God in all our circumstances. And may our faith grow stronger and stronger. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we know at times we find our circumstances and we wonder where you are. And there are times, Father, that we reach out and we seek and sometimes we may think you're indifferent to our circumstances. But, Father, help us to have faith in your love and your care for us and know that you are always there walking with us, being with us, that the storm will not last. It will come to an end, but you will be with us. 
both as the storm rages and as the star storm departs. In Jesus' name, amen.